Hello and welcome to the June episode of Trees A Crowd, the must-have nature-slash-arts crossover podcast of the summer. Now, back in November, November the 1st, 2022 to be precise, I hosted a live recording of Trees A Crowd for Stanford's Travel Bookshop in Covent Garden. This week's episode, to coincide with the paperback edition of the now award-winning book that I was there to discuss, is the recording of that very live event. So... Without giving this week's guest two introductions and making her head swell up like the gullet of a greater sage-grouse attracting a suitor, this is Trees A Crowd, and this is Sophie Pavel. In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches the ivy her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. Uh, right, hello, welcome to the bookshop. Uh, my name is David Oakes. I am an actor, I've written it down, a uh, natural history podcaster and an ambassador for the Woodland Trust and the Wildlife Trust. Now, before I introduce you to this lady on my right, just to say that it is being recorded for the previously mentioned podcast, so no swearing unless it is particularly fruity or imaginative, and we can always bleep you out nicely. But once I've got bored of talking to Sophie, after about 30 minutes or so, I will throw open the floor and you can ask any questions that you might have. Um, if you don't have any suitable questions, might include, why do you like Devon so much? Surely Cornwall <laughs> is nicer. <laughs> That's one. Or what's the main difference between the Beaver Trust and the Badger Trust? That's another one. <laughs> um, and third possible question you could ask her is, were you annoyed that David got to use the word ejectamenta in this interview before you did? <laughs> <laughs> already so that's an in-joke for anyone who's already read the book so I've worked out that we've got a relatively fresh audience apart from the front row here great so without further ado the woman sitting next to me is the communications coordinator for the Beaver Trust she sits on the England Advisory Committee for the RSPB she is an ambassador for the Wildlife Trusts and somewhere in all of that she also finds time to present the Beaver Trust's Lodgecast to write for the Metro the Guardian and other readily available journals and is now the author of an award-nominated potentially award-winning book forget me not hello sophie and welcome hello clapping should you clapping (laughs) so yeah so let's start with probably the most startling revelation in your book which is that you state that you once longed to be a guinea pig breeder named janet (laughs) (laughs) what went wrong I'd say that I'm still fairly keen for that dream to be realized yeah i mean it was a it was an awkward phase of around 14 years old and hadn't really figured out what I was interested in apart from gelling my hair with actual gel, wet look, and being obsessed with guinea pigs. Uh, Did you have a guinea pig? I had four at what one time, called? as someone in the audience actually knows. Do you know we what they to, were called? We used to look after each other's guinea pigs, me and Rachel. Okay. Um, Tufty, Scampi, like, Snuffles Pansy. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, four at one time. Busy, you know, I was very busy being a guinea pig mum. Did you look after each other's when the other one went away, or did you do, like, exchange programs <laughs> you know, whether or not your skill sets exchange, were transferable? Exchange guinea pigs. No, whenever we went on holiday, it would be a big, you know, logistical transportation of the hutch to each other's houses. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was great. And so, you know, I was obsessed with the idea of just having a life that was fully dedicated to guinea pigs, guinea pigs. and their happiness. And the name Janet? <laughs> <laughs> um, I only read Enid Blyton for many years and my favourite character in St Clair's was naughty trickster Janet and I just wanted to be her. And I actually wrote a post-it note 
on my bedside table that was literally, and I think she's actually still got it, ask mum if can change name to Janet. <laughs> because I, I thought I'd forget. <laughs> you know, in my busy world of being 14, I thought I'd forget to ask her if I could actually change my wow. name. Did post-it notes feature heavily in the writing of, of this book? Um, Are you still as organised? And... Not so much, actually. No, okay. yeah, I've actually got less organised. Um... <laughs> well, that's probably good. Yeah. Um, where did you grow up? Where was home, is home? So I was actually born in America, in the Deep South, in Augusta, Georgia. My dad was in the US Navy, so we moved around a little bit. And then my mum was in the Royal Navy in Britain, and they both realised that they wanted to bring up children in the southwest of England and thought that we could build a pretty good life there. So With we moved, guinea pigs? With guinea pigs, yeah. Guinea pigs, hair gel, the lot. So it was great. And we moved to a lovely, sleepy, kind of coastal estuary village called Limpston in East Devon. And we grew up right on the estuary, so the ex-estuary, which is famous for its overwintering birds and wildlife and everything, was suddenly our garden from suburban deep south Augusta, Georgia. So the contrast was pretty amazing. And then, yeah, we've kind of hopped around the ex throughout our childhood, so that's very much home for me. Were they nature lovers? Did they have an appreciation for the cetaceans and dolphins and etc. that they were taking their massive naval vessels across? <laughs> Not really. I think what they did pass on was a sense of adventure and for exploring your doorstep before you... Ironically, especially because my dad was on ships and things, but more for, I think, just getting outside and not letting things like the weather and terrain and difficulty hinder you or put you off getting out there and just kind of throwing yourself into it. So I think I've really carried that through and it's remained really important to me throughout my whole life. And so I guess looking back, I've kind of tried to tailor jobs and careers and interests to basically keep me out there doing that kind of thing as much as possible. And we're talking, you went out in Dartmoor or are you talking along the coastline? Like where, where were these outside places that you liked so much? Dartmoor features heavily and was very much the scene of lots of tantrums and picnics and is this a circle oh. in your um. in your book it says that it untangled your young mind it did i think it did but i had no idea at the time obviously because all i could think about was guinea pigs <laughs> um and i think it just kind of set my brother and i on a really good path uh -huh. for kind of wholesome thinking and priorities where i mean we feel very lucky that smartphones and the internet and social media did not feature in our childhood. I think we just about escaped that. Uh -huh. When we left school, it was suddenly starting to explode. For us, all that was important was each other. We had a very close relationship growing up sure. and just being outside. And so Coast Path, Dartmoor, the woods, I had a very lucky upbringing in that sense. Your MSc was in science communication, in particular how social media is used to take environmental messages out to the populace probably mm -hmm. should make say that sentence much better than I can but that's basically as I understand it, what you're doing do you see the sort of disparity between having the benefit of growing up in a world without the internet and without social media and now living in a world where it's something that has to be studied and managed and controlled otherwise it becomes not what well, it becomes the force for bad that you suggest it is like how can you have a life running around Dartmoor untangling your mind mm. when Twitter and Instagram mm. exist it's a good question and one that I struggle with. I think I, with work, I feel obliged to use social media a lot. It's almost the expectation, I think, of someone in my line of work. But I think because I didn't grow up with it and because I studied it in my master's, I can look at it more objectively and a bit more critically and perhaps at, some, at times cynically. So I kind of 
I'm able to reflect when my relationship with it is perhaps unhealthy mm -hmm. and then I need to take a step back from it. So for example, when I was writing Forget Me Not, I completely came off social media towards the end because it turns out that social media and writing well do not go well together. <laughs> Although your book does include hashtags. It does, yeah. I actually had to remove some. It's a bit hashtag happy. <laughs> well, I, I read your proof copy, so I probably saw more you hashtags saw more, than yeah, there were. Yeah, there were a bit too many um, hashtag basics. Because I think they kind of sounded better in my head. And then when I was reading aloud, especially when I was doing the audiobook, I was like, hmm. I think we much. all sound better in our heads, though. Yeah, we do. <laughs> so, would everyone agree with that? <laughs> we sound amazing. <laughs> As we're talking about hashtags in your book, who, who is this book for? I wrote it with a kind of both a specific and a broad audience in mind. So when I was at university, I studied zoology for my bachelor's degree. And again, I kind of felt obliged to fill my head with certain things. And obviously there were reading lists that we had to do. But then lots of my peers were very, very much into their natural history books and their traditional literature that suddenly made them sound really smart and kind of made them seem further ahead than I felt. Mm -hmm. They knew how to identify birds and they knew how to, you know, look for stuff outside and actually know what it is and where it came from. Whereas I was never trained in that. And I haven't, I've never really had an interest in really remedying that. I just like being in it and then being around people who know a bit more about it than I do and learning from them. I felt a little bit like the books that were around at the time when I was studying were a little bit were very information heavy. When they talked about climate change and human impact on the environment were quite gloomy, quite fear-mongering. They often blamed humanity a lot and obviously humans are to blame, but they didn't make me feel kind of excited necessarily or that I could be part of that too. So we need to blame um, humans in a happier, more... Blame humans in a happy way, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I felt that, and working in conservation since finishing studying, it's really easy to get kids excited about nature because they're already kind of on board with it and they're really receptive to that kind of natural history content. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the demographic who are of advanced years, perhaps 50 plus, who have maybe a bit more time, life experience, resources and energy to dedicate to giving a little bit of time for nature where perhaps they couldn't before. But then I feel that there's an age group between say late teens, 20s and 30s, where suddenly nature isn't cool anymore. And yet you still have that, you suddenly have maybe a bit more curiosity for it. I feel like young people are really receptive and engaged with the environment and eco-politics and what's going on and what's happening and what can we do about it? And they have so many questions, but then also life at that time is incredibly demanding. We've got so much against us in terms of trying to land on both feet with finding somewhere to live, finding jobs, finding a partner, all these normal life things. And so I kind of felt like there was a gap where there almost wasn't enough time to fit nature in that sure. part of your life. And so how could we Make that accessible to them. Make it accessible, yeah. To give people an idea of, of some of the language that Sophie uses in the book, I've, oh, I've, dear. <laughs> I've taken a few selections of my favourite. She refers to the marsh fritillary butterfly as looking like salt and vinegar chipsticks. <laughs> I think that's very, that places you very definitely at a certain age as 90s, well. 90s, yeah. The bilberry bumblebee is described as having an Aperol spritz ass. Mm. Now, I think that goes past the generations, especially onto the continent, so you're getting a wider reach there. Thank You've you, got yeah. grey seals as bald men in hot tubs. Yeah. <laughs> the Irish sea as a reluctant jacuzzi. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and bottlenose dolphins as that guy in the office who trails a 10-metre wake of pack a raban, loves a good laugh, babe, can be an occasional <laughs> arse. <laughs> I mean, we got taught all that in zoology. <laughs> yeah, what are they doing down in Bristol? <laughs> yeah. 
no, I, I, I completely hear you. I think that uh, making science and nature, and especially climate change science, accessible to a wider audience is very hard as people think they know all about it. And I think your book does mm. that incredibly well, which gives a good segue. Can you explain what the book is? <laughs> Other than being very um, pretty and blue. It's a nice blue book. It is a non-fiction narrative. So it tells a story and the story is written in, in my voice and it kind of charts the, the journey of 10 low carbon trips I make around uh, the British Isles that go from Bodmin to the top of the Orkneys to Sussex, the Cairngorms, Wales. Where's another place? I can't remember. Many places. It's all a bit of a blur. You say low carbon, not no carbon. Low carbon, yeah. So not carbon neutral. That would be nigh impossible. So with the with the idea being that at the moment, it's very difficult to almost be mindful of our travel and our choices because the green option is often more expensive or not as easy or it takes a long time. Like often we don't have time to spend 10 hours on a train and make multiple changes. We've all got busy lives and jobs mm -hmm. and budgets and everything like that. So the low carbon thing was kind of an experiment or an investigation as to how well set up the UK is for making the low carbon option the default choice, as opposed to just getting in the car and it being completely independent. You have loads of autonomy about your journey and your time. And so it was a challenge, especially during COVID, which yeah. came along. And so these low carbon trips were to find 10 endangered native species who are fighting and living and breathing and existing on the front lines of the climate change scene in Britain. So that brings the big question is how did you select these 10 species? Tricky because the brief was overlook species. Actually, who chose the brief? Did you choose the brief? Were you approached by Bloomsbury Wildlife? Like, is it... um, I chose the brief okay. and then we kind of polished it up and worked on it together mm. to kind of make it as it is. But in terms of the whole endangered native overlook species, that was largely what I've been hoping to write anyway. And so obviously there are way more than 10 species who are in need of this attention and in need of the spotlight. What was really important to me is that I knew nothing about the species before I started researching them. So yes, I did zoology, but that is so unbelievably broad. And we actually spent more time learning about how lion prides work and parasites inside cattle in West Africa and just all sorts of niche but totally removed things that I know a little bit about a lot but barely anything about what's here in the UK. Do you think that's a failure of modern zoology degrees? Do I do, yeah, I really do. Beavers are the hottest conservation story at the moment and I'm lucky to... to <laughs> they are. And so who, who do you work for again? The uh, badgers, I mean the beaver trust. <laughs> and we heard nothing. I doubt. I don't even remember a beaver being mentioned at universe in the context of my zoology degree. For sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what else is going on down at Bristol University? <laughs> But yeah, so it was important for me to not know anything about the species because I really wanted me and the reader to kind of, as mates, be learning together about these species on the way. So it wasn't kind of author up here telling reader down here what to think and what to know and how to feel. It was us learning together as kind of as comrades mates. and mates. You referred um, to the reader as mate on a few occasions. Yeah. Can you name your 10 species that you chose? No yes, cheating. there's always a few that I forget, actually, which is okay. really bad, uh, ironically. <laughs> um, okay, uh, marsh fritillary, harbour porpoise, here we go, uh, seagrass, grey long-eared bat, black guillemot, dung beetles, mountain hare, merlin, bilberry bumblebee. Nine. No, no. Nine. No, that's not true. Atlantic salmon. <gasps> oh, <laughs> which is your least favourite of the that's ten? All. 
Oh, I go through <laughs> fish. <laughs> Not the salmon, actually. I feel bad. I feel sorry, salmon. <laughs> Poor salmon. <laughs> That's awful. Um, we don't have time to talk about all ten of them. Mm. So what I thought I'd do is I would put Ooh. them in a little jar and let someone in the audience choose. <gasps> I think we maybe get around sort of That's three. A fun game. So take one. What have we got? What's the first topic? Dung beetles. <gasps> dung oh. beetles. Okay, Sophie, what's the most exciting thing that you discovered about dung beetles? Something you knew nothing before you went to NEP. I went to NEP in West Sussex. So it is a pioneering area of private land run by Charlie and Izzy Burrell, who are incredible leaders in the rewilding nature restoration space where they were industrial farmers for many, many years, many generations. And then that wasn't working for them financially anymore. So they kind of did a huge U-turn and thought, well, let's experiment and see what happens when we give the land back to nature. And then lo and behold, it's been the most incredibly inspiring success story where they've welcomed back simply by basically letting nature have some of a say in what happens to the land and how it works. They've welcomed back species that we haven't seen here in the UK for hundreds of years who are on the brink of extinction. The cuckoo, the purple emperor butterfly. Suddenly they have a huge spotlight in terms of what things could be if we let go a little bit. And I was really interested in the dung and the poo all over the estate. And what's amazing is that they have lots of different roaming mammals and grazers who produce lots of different kinds of poo. And lots of different kinds of poo means lots of different kinds of beetles. And I didn't quite realise quite how fundamental dung beetles are to the success of nature as a whole in Britain. And everything starts, they're the true kind of epitome of a grassroots approach, apart from seagrass. Which we might get onto, depending get on, on to, what yeah. we get out of the magic pot. Yeah. So anyway, dung beetles basically help the soil stay healthy. Are you talking like sort of big sort of scaraby like pushing balls of dung around? No. So I thought that was the case, but it turns out that we don't have dung ball rolling beetles in the UK. Our dung beetles kind of just play with the actual pat itself. When you say play? Kind of. Well, they mate in it. They have sex in the pat and they eat it. <laughs> do they need the pat in order to have sex? Yes, they do. Yeah. Because it kind of releases the kind of sexy hormones that make them... <laughs> the smell, so... It takes all kinds. With, it does. So where lots of insects have um, their sort of antennae and they smell out sexy hormones in the air, the dung beetles smell out sex fecal particles because then that leads them to the patch and then they're like, great, I can have sex. Brilliant, life sorted. It starts this amazing succession of colonisation where basically the dung beetles come and then everything else happens. So other insects mites and then they feed the birds and then they, they feed come to eat things. the larvae of the dung beetles or the yeah like so how does it draw people in the dung beetles are often the first to arrive cow has a dump within minutes the first army of dung beetles can either fly or crawl to the pat and then they can either start eating it or they can sort of get ready to mate and then they have these kind of mites and which bring fungi and fungi spores and it basically is this whole world of its own within a pat and my favourite fact from Penny Green, the ecologist at NEP, was the way to know whether a pat is a good pat is that it has the same consistency as a chocolate brownie. Um, <laughs> because the best brownies, obviously, are a little bit crusty on the top, gooey in the middle. So I had the best time with my latex gloves on, poking and prodding the best pats. And it was actually so much fun because you got to kind of break the crust 
and then get the gooeyness <laughs> in the middle without disturbing, you know, the life that was happening inside. When you say a good and healthy pet, yeah, you're, you're implying that there are less good and less healthy pets. There are. Well, because we're in a dung deficit in the UK. Hashtag dung deficit. I know. <laughs> and nobody's talking about it. We hear about all kinds of other deficits, but not a dung one. So basically the dung that is now in our countryside, we've normalised the kind of yellow, runny, kind of gross mess that gets all over your wellies if you go out on a walk and you kind of see it and it's just, it doesn't look right. It should be nice, self-contained, brownie-like pats that come from all different kinds of mammals because that is a sign of healthy soil and obviously healthy soil means healthy everything else. Dung beetles were a fascinating gateway to the wider discussion about how we manage the land, farming, soil health, carbon cycles, nutrient cycles, and how we can help bring dung beetles back. Did you see a dung beetle on this trip? I saw their larvae. Did you see a dung beetle on this trip? No. I saw a door beetle on a different trip. Yeah. Okay, well, that's fine. I'll take but that. But not the, not the dung beetle dedicated trip. Who's got the jar of joy? Okay, great. What have we got? Grey long-eared bat. Grey long-eared Ooh. bat. We're going to stick with feces. <laughs> Tell me about glittering poo. Why is that oh, a, yeah. <laughs> a user of interest? I promise the book is more than just poo. It's not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> poo, <laughs> guinea pigs and hair gel. Hey, um, I'm, they're just picking the poo chapters. This is... <laughs> yeah, there's a theme here. Um, so the grey long-eared bat is one of the rarest mammals in the UK and it's the rarest bat we have. It is exactly as it sounds. It's grey and it and it has long ears and it's a bat um i got to go see one of the maternity roosts that is i think there's only nine left in the uk at the moment in terms of where the breeding bats spend the summer to rear their one puppy year and then they go down into caves and mines and cellars to spend the winter and hibernate so i got to go to a barn on a farm and in devon am i right in, in devon yeah, yeah in east devon and east devon has i think 25 percent of the gray long bat population in the uk so it's disproportionately favorable there's a good mixture of the kind of old buildings that they like so they like old farm buildings old churches things like that but they are as a species disproportionately associated with wildflower meadows and unimproved grassland and in that part of devon there's quite a good kind of mosaic of those grasslands and things because it's near the coast and there's quite um, a good range of habitat there. And also there's a lot of work that the Bat Conservation Trust is doing down there to try and connect corridors and flight paths between the different remaining colonies. Mm-hmm. But glittery poo happened when... So this bat is also known yeah, as... To bring the, it back to the poo. <laughs> just, to, just to bring it back to the glittering poo. The grey longer bat is also known as the whispering bat because it can basically choose whether or not to appear. So most bats echolocate and you can hear them on a bat detector and it goes click click or drip 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 and you're like oh a bat but with the grey long-eared if it chooses to say okay I'm gonna I'm gonna echolocate for you it will sound like the faintest purring like a cat but more often than not you won't hear anything at all because it's it's evolved to be the like most covert stealthiest hunter where basically most bats echolocation lights say like a torch beam of area around it but for the grey long-eared bat it's like a candle flickering it's that small and so you're more likely to see its field signs and it just so happened that I was very much in a state where I was tired I was exhausted I'd done a big old hike to get there and it was like midnight and I was just losing interest and patience and then all of a sudden Craig the Batman wonderful Craig um just blown his secret identity (laughs) (laughs) he was like come here go Sophie 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 look and um under the torchlight he was pointing his torch at this poo and it was absolutely like a glitter ball of poo and because it was glitter he was like that is a grey long bat's poo and I was just like oh my god <laughs> this is amazing I was trying to take loads of photos of it with the light like flaring out and it's glittery because 
its diet is almost enti well, it's entirely insectivorous. And so the chitin, which is the exoskeleton of an insect, it doesn't fully break down in the poo. And so it's basically lots and lots of tiny shards of exoskeleton. And when it catches the light, it's completely glittery. And it was just amazing and very exciting. One of the things you touched on there was about how they can be specific with where they echolocate. Yeah. I think it's worth saying that they've evolved to do that because a lot of moths have worked out how to avoid mm. generic bat echolocation. Mm -hmm. So in response to that evolution, mm. these particular bats have evolved back to have a very yeah. sort of laser sharp kind yeah. of thing, which is amazing. The arms race. Yeah. The arms race of moth versus bat. Yeah. It's incredible. And it was really special to be able to try and or to have the opportunity to try and flip the perception of bats on its head and actually remind people that they are one of the most highly specialised species in the world and one of the most important to save. And yet we've demonised bats in the Western world for centuries when actually they have so many ecosystem services and they also have so many answers to so, so many of our problems like pest control and yeah, things well, like I was going to say, what's an ecosystem service? An ecosystem service is basically something that nature, I don't want to say can do for us because we shouldn't seek to be provided by nature, but just by living their life and being, say, a grey longed bat, it just so happens that their lives can can benefit us. And so, you know, for a farmer who's looking to save money on pesticides and also save the countryside and save the soil and save dung beetles, for a mammal like the grey longed bat to be a natural pest control mm -hmm. is a very smart choice for a farmer to make to try and make their habitat suitable for the bats so that then they can spend less money on spraying the landscape with pesticides. Which is better to make those perfect dungs Brownie for dung. those beetles exactly. and everybody's off to the, off to the markets. Mm. One of the risks to the grey long-eared bats is that of electromagnetic radiation, mm. that of sort of city lights create an ecological trap, if you will. They can't do what they do well because there's too much electronic interference. So in your book, you talk of how we are trying to create bat bridges and mm -hmm. bat safe paths. Mm -hmm. Are you talking about just sort of having a corridor where the lights are turned off or where there's no Wi-Fi coverage? Mm. Like what is what is a safe space for a bat to go through? Um, so to put it in context, so an amazing researcher I spoke to called Jack Merrifield, who's doing his PhD at Southampton, where they're re really leading the way with this research into how lights and urban centres are disrupting really specialised animals like the bat who have evolved to live in a world without light. And then suddenly light is there. And he said that asking a bat to fly under a streetlight is like asking humans to walk through a brick wall. It just completely stops their biology from working. And so in terms of making corridors of land safe for bats, things as simple as having time-restricted lighting for streetlights. So like, say, instead of keeping them on until 1, 2, 3 p.m. in the morning, turn them off at 10 or when it gets dark in the winter, you know, turn them off perhaps even earlier when people have gone inside earlier. It's just corridors of darkness, basically, where they can carry on doing what we need them to do and what they need to do. Mm -hmm. We want society and nature to live harmoniously as, as much as possible alongside each other, so not too much at the trade-off of, you know, we don't want to piss off too many people sure. because then they won't want to do more stuff for nature. Did you see <laughs> the grey long-eared bat? I think I might. Did you see the grey long-eared bat? I didn't, no. <laughs> no but i so i saw a bat shape come past and i had the detector dialed to the frequency of the gray longer bats call mm -hmm. should it choose to call and it flew over nothing but then it, we saw its poo oh well it's a win-win yeah um who's got the pot of potential 
pleasure. <laughs> He's got number three. You might want to work on that one. Merlin. Merlin. Oh, oh wow. fantastic. Yes. No, I love the Merlin. Sophie, why do you now love the Merlin? I love the Merlin because we've had a rocky relationship, me and the Merlin. The Merlin came very close to being axed out of the book purely by me because I was getting so frustrated that I couldn't find anything about it. The only papers I could find about its biology and its history here in the UK were in the 1980s. And so in the spirit of up-to-date modern science, it wasn't really fitting the bill. Also, I had all sorts of birdie experts being like, oh, don't do the Merlin, do the goshawk, do the hen harrier, do something else. And so I was like, well, maybe I should do the goshawks. You know, people like it. But then I was like, hang on, I'm coming close to like betraying the whole point of this book and that I'm trying to highlight underdog species that people have never heard of. This is in the book. I had I gave myself an exercise where I was like Googling the Merlin and literally it was on like page three of Google that referenced to it being a natural bird in the UK came up. It was like Merlin the TV show, Merlin Entertainment's Thought Park, Merlin, 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 but nothing about the bird. And I was like, well, this is an issue that I'd quite like to address. And it turns out it's just the most amazing, amazing thing. So there are smallest bird of prey, aren't they? Smallest bird of prey with a big attitude. <laughs> and there's photos of Merlin's mobbing vultures who are like, I don't know, 10 times the size of it. They will literally, they do not care about anything else. They have their own agenda. If anything gets in their way, they will literally, and there's videos of Merlin's almost punching <laughs> goshawks with their lovely yellow feet. So the Mer this is Merlin here. On the front cover of the book right On the there. front cover, Pride of Place. They are incredibly feisty, incredibly fiery. They've captivated writers for centuries and it did take a lot of digging to find some amazing anecdotes of people who've been lucky enough to see a Merlin. And they're really an indicator species as to the health of our uplands, mm. which have gone through an enormous journey in the UK in terms of uh, good and bad things happening yeah, to them. Yeah, you, you refer to them by saying the number and frequency of Merlin sightings show us that we are not learning fast enough. Mm. What do you mean by that? I kind of was broadening out to be an indicator as to our relationship with nature in general, in terms of there are species that are on the brink of disappearing right under our nose, and we, we haven't even bothered to learn about them yet. And we're not learning about their place in the food chain and in the ecosystem. It will only become clear when they go, and that piece of the puzzle comes out a bit like a Jenga. You keep taking bits out, and then it's going to topple, and it's going to be difficult to rebuild. You refer to it in the way of... Of they prefer to prey on pipits, for example, yeah. the, the small songbirds who then in turn like to feed on crane flies. Yeah. And the crane flies in particular are ultra reliant upon dampness, basically. Mm. None of these heat waves that we seem to be having a lot of them. So mm. although we still see some crane flies and we occasionally see a pipit, we may be seeing fewer and fewer merlins and they'll be gone before we know they're gone. Exactly. So I think they were the one species where I was genuinely really worried that they would go and no one would know because I couldn't find out too much about them because there's such a drought in scientific research on them. It gave me freedom, I guess, editorially to discover more about our relationship with birds of prey and interrogate how we've handled our very complicated, toxic relationship with, with birds of prey over the years. But then also we've got a wonderful relationship with the Merlin in terms of falconry, you know, mm -hmm. to find out that it was Mary Queen of Scots' favorite bird to hawk. It was that very was cool. They were seen as a, bird, a, a woman's bird of prey. Yeah, yeah. They were dinky. But, yeah. Dinky, the, the but then touch. fierce. But I feel like with Mary Queen of Scots, you know, she was feisty and she was fierce. Mm -hmm. And so for her to have the Merlin as her favourite bird to hawk, I was like, that's pretty cool. Where did you go to find the Merlin? I went to the Peak District, the Dark Peak, which I've never been to before. It's lovely. Very hot and sweaty ride, but very much an ecological desert. 
I don't think I've been anywhere where I've been quite so taken aback by how barren it is. This is on the top of the Dark Peaks in particular. Top of the Dark yeah. Peak. And famously, it was in a photo that went viral a couple of years ago during lockdown of where someone basically said, oh, you know, look at this lovely wilderness, England at its best or something, I'm mm -hmm. paraphrasing. But it was just complete ecological desert. There was nothing there. And it was so symptomatic of how we're viewing nature in terms of our perception of wild and wilderness. And England. And, and pastoral England, and... yeah, pastoral, when that should be wooded, that should be covered in all kinds of vegetation and trees and supporting a whole array of life. And so to be able to be in a place where there should be lots of Merlin and to barely see any wildlife was uh, quite startling. So were the peaks just overgrazed, was it? Was it overgrazed and then grouse shooting, heavily managed for a pastime, um, which is very contentious at the moment mm -hmm. ecologically. So it was very difficult to try and talk about the politics surrounding grouse shooting without getting too kind of stuck into talking about it and trying to come out and sort of not rant and lament the past, but say, okay, well, what can we do next? Sure. How can we sort it? In terms of issues, it's quite a busy book. You touch on the loss of ancient forestry, grouse shooting, as you mentioned, the high-speed rail link, the overgrazing of herbivores, which I've just mentioned, peat destruction, raptor persecution, the list goes on. You touch upon pretty much everything, which is brilliant and rightfully use the positive to talk about the negative. But the question that I want to put to you is a question that you put to Evie, who's the seagrass specialist you talk to. You ask her, what is she afraid of? Mm. With all of the topics that you have touched on in the book, which are you most afraid of? And is it even possible to prioritise which is the concern that we should be dealing with first? I'm just afraid of, I think, people not knowing what's here and then it's gone. So I interviewed over 70 experts for the book to supplement my lack of knowledge about these species to basically be this kind of valiant supporting cast of amazing scientists and researchers who are reminding us that there is amazing stuff happening and good work being done. I asked them all the question, what are you afraid of? Right at the end. And it was really interesting, the, depending on how old and what situation the person was in, how they answered it. So the slightly older researchers who often had children always said, I'm worried for my children, always. And then the younger researchers, so I interviewed a lot of PhD and MSc students who was amazing because I'd say like, oh, who's, I just wanted the best expert for the job. and like with Evie with the seagrass, mm -hmm. people were like, no, no, don't talk to Professor so-and-so, talk to Evie, who's doing a master's. And I was like, this is amazing, you know, these, this is the next generation. And they would always talk about they're afraid of their future, but then also people not knowing, just ignorance and overlook and blindsiding and that the world is so busy that there's stuff happening right under our eyes and we just don't know. And so to almost go back to the basics of restoring that, not necessarily knowledge and scientific know-how but just the fundamental awareness of what nature does in the UK and what it does for us. Do you think it is possible to have a united front against climate change and biodiversity decimation if our concerns are so disparate where some people are concerned about the mm. message being got across and an equally important message about their children's safety like until we all unify on one main concern do you think we'll actually do anything? That's a really tricky one. You know, humans desire control and that's an impossible thing to control. We more just have to focus on us as individuals and, 
you know, connection to nature and its restoration and your sort of relationship with it for life is so subjective. Mm -hmm. So it has to come from you. And so we can't prescribe a certain way of how that looks and, you know, what actions you take in your daily life to basically say, oh, I'm connected to nature now. It's It means something totally different to me and to you and to everyone here. And so I think it's more about keeping the conversation going. Okay. And I think the fact that we're talking about nature a lot at the moment is a really good start and i think with the whole eco-anxiety thing and feeling overwhelmed about the future of the natural world it's a really good opportunity to come together and you can unify with people in your conversation but it's very difficult to control your unification response but who knows you know conversation can lead to action which can lead to change and so we just have to i think think about the long game and do as much as we can individually to try and keep that ball rolling. Did you see a Merlin? No. <laughs> <laughs> it just shows how rare they are. Which again is a worry. I mean, I only gave myself one day, didn't I? So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, was that intentional? Was it just working around your work commitments that you could only sort of specify like a day here or two days there? Yeah, it was mainly. And then also budget and COVID uh, and everything. But also it was really important for me to try and write about trips that anyone could do around busy lives and budgets and work and everything. And traditionally, the natural history books that I've read, it seems like the author has all the time and money in the world to be able to spend days and days and weeks, you know, just being in nature and just fully immersing in it. And it's such a luxury to be able to do that. People have to get back to work and look after children and look after pets and just be normal people and you, you were here to tell people that even if they've only got one day off they can also not exactly. see a merlin exactly <laughs> or also not and they see can a get very toy. sunburned <laughs> <laughs> and then and revel in the joy of almost missing a train on frequent occasions yeah it's all about winging it it's about being in the moment <laughs> and just the whole experience of just giving it a go i think was more memorable than whether or not i saw it i think that's that's half the charm of the book is that you feel like you could do it too <laughs> Although the people that you're talking Sounds to like are experts. Yeah, you could do it. Too. That's the tagline on the book. You can do it Forget too. me not. You can do it too. Um, as we're in a travel bookshop and oh, you yeah. travelled for this book, out of all the places you went to, other than Devon, which is obviously your home and has been for a while, mm. where would you choose to reside? Orkney. Why? I've never been somewhere where there is more wildlife than people. I was there on my own. I was there for five days and... It was a long trip to get up there. So I went to North Ronaldsay, which is the very northernmost island at the top of Orkney. And it's really famous for its bird observatory. So people travel from all over the world to the bird observatory to find and to watch migratory birds that are on their way to and from the Arctic and circumnavigating the globe like Arctic terns. And it's just a really, really special place. And I think I had kind of poo-pooed that Back pastime. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've done poo poo that pastime as like a kind of nerdy niche. I'm never going to be interested in that. But I caught a glimpse of actually how amazing it is if you have got a couple of days to just let a landscape fully embrace you and the soundscape as well of just waves and wind and birds beyond belief. And it was the first place and the only place I've been to where I think, or well, I sort of told myself that the wildlife hadn't had enough of humanity to associate them as a threat. So they viewed me more curiously than the same species back home. So we get seals in Devon and Cornwall and things like that, normally away with a splash. But up there, they would come right up 
and they just want to see what I was up to. And to be in the presence of another mammal that is bigger than you and is clearly very intelligent. And, and on their turf. And on their turf, and I was the one who was out of place, was just so bizarre, but I've never forgotten it. And so that's the one trip that I return to again and again and again in my head. And I'd go back there in a heartbeat. It, it's one of the places I've always wanted to go to. And when I was reading that chapter, I got very jealous. Mm, had There's, very good weather. Uh, you've got the Orkney vole, which is an endemic species that doesn't exist anywhere else up there. You've got the North Ronaldsy sheep oh, that have evolved yeah, to eat seaweed. I actually thought they were goats. I really embarrassed myself on my first day. Sheep, go, goat, sheep. Yeah, because, you know, the people who stay up there in a full-time residence are like hardcore nature people. And so I first thought that black guillemots, which is the bird I was looking for, they're locally known as tysties. And so, you know, they'd, they'd be very sort of quiet. I was up there, you know, all enthusiastic and probably a bit loud. And they'd be like, oh, any tysties? I was like, sorry? I was like, oh, no, I had, um, I had a really good sandwich at lunchtime. <laughs> uh, but I don't think it. I don't think it was a tasty one, and they looked really horrified. And I was like, and and I was like, do you mean like it's like a kind of haggis, right? And they were like, no, no, tasties are black guillemots that you're here to see. We didn't have a tasty sandwich, and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And then you know, we, I got to join them. Uh, I told you I didn't know. I've never been trained how to look at nature. <laughs> and um, we were on. We were ringing full marchicks. So I wasn't. I was watching them and marveling at their skill. Fulmers are amazing seabirds. If you don't know that, like to vomit whenever you approach a bit of ring on them. So they're probably the yeah, yeah, like least... bright orange. Yeah. And so, so their their Norse name is translates to foul gull because it's this gross orange vomit. And uh, so we were sort of going around the island, being vomited on, and I was like, wow, you're so clever and amazing. This is so cool. And um, I say, oh, you know, what kind of goats are these? And uh, they were like, oh, they're, they're like world famous sheep. Like, oh. They were like, you know, we have this internationally renowned mm -hmm. sheep festival that literally the whole world knows about and comes and descends on North Ronaldo for the sheep. It's really, really famous. I was like, I they can see, a, yeah. They have a dike around the entire circumference <laughs> yeah, of the island dike. to keep the sheep on the yeah. beach eating the seaweed. It's... And so their, their meat, so I was told, I was strongly advised later, colleague said, uh, I hope you ate the mutton because it's a real sign of respect to the island that you eat their famous mutton, which is delicious because it's seasoned by the sea because they eat a diet exclusively of seaweed. Amazing. <laughs> Any questions whilst we're here? I've been asking stupid questions, so you can too. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed the book. Oh, thank well. you. And I think, because I work in conservation, but there's not that many books that I would recommend to people who kind of don't know much about it because they can be quite sort of intense and meaty they're a bit they're quite sort of full of jargon and stuff but this was like a really nice accessible one so I'm telling everyone to read oh, it oh thank you um do you think that you'd write another book do you know what other themes that you'd want to because there was so much in the book yes it was busy I think I really miss the like pure writing process of it and I was surprised by how much I enjoyed the very kind of private introverted nature of just basically being free to kind of let go on the page I feel like I've sort of scratched the surface of amazing stories and I already have a list that from the scientists of like at least 15 other species who fit the bill for being kind of ugly or endangered and overlooked and native and in need of serious attention so I think if I was to go and do it again I would love to write about a reptile and or an amphibian because I feel like I left those groups out. Do you view yourself as a travel writer or a nature writer because you're sort of both in this? I wouldn't say I'm a nature writer. I feel like that is such a... I don't feel like I'm ready to say that yet. I think that's a... It's such a revered, beloved kind of genre. And 
type of writer I don't feel like I've I don't know I don't feel like I'd fit that bill per se I love the travel element of it mm -hmm. I think I would love to have more room to maybe flesh out a slightly grittier adventure side of that and just kind of play with that a little bit um any other questions <laughs> yes at the back um you mentioned that obviously all of us are kind of getting involved and knowing a little bit more and there's a huge amount of individuals who are doing really great work but obviously some people will always have kind of a bit more influence than others mm. who do you think are kind of the key groups is it landowners is it farmers mm. is it government that need to kind of do more um and how would you like kind of particularly farmers get them on side given mm. that there's so much else going on at the moment that the stresses and pressures they're under mm. Who do you think are kind of the, the key organisations or groups that need to really engage with this agenda? Great question. It's a very tricky time at the moment because people like farmers are under pressure from so many sides. It pains me when they're sort of vilified in the whole nature situation and in nature's decline because they're largely doing what they're told in terms of the law and what the law constricts and, and kind of allows them to do or not to do they're bound by so much red tape and there really are allies here you know farmers know the land like nobody else and so in terms of the groups that need to change it's the government the government needs to bind nature in law but the trouble is is that we're at the moment dealing with a government who is proposing to deregulate the environment and to remove i think it's 570 laws that protect nature that were protecting nature when we were in the eu and they're proposing to scrap them as opposed to polishing them up and making them work for nature now. Or at least get a replacement ready to go before we yeah. remove them. The public follows leadership and we need leadership. We need top-down leadership and that needs to be in law. That kind of leadership could be a game changer for nature. So it's we need to be really, really smart with how we exercise our power as voters in a democracy and writing to our MPs and not feeling like it won't make a difference because if enough of us do it, it will. But before we wrap it up, there are three questions that I ask everybody that comes on the podcast. Uh, the first one is, if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? Um, I think because it's in my head at the moment around the perimeter of North Ronaldsea. They've got some great goats there, don't they? They've got really good goats, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they eat seaweed. <laughs> okay, question two. Who is your natural history hero? Ooh, it has been for a long time and it still is. It's Dr. Ruth Tingay. She is an absolute powerhouse of a conservationist. She is incredibly humble, incredibly modest. She never blows her own trumpet at all. And yet she has so much to chat about. She has single-handedly prevented and exposed rapt persecution and horrible bird crime throughout the UK for decades. And she's dedicated her life and put her own life at risk many times for nature. And she's gritty, she's hardcore. She's no nonsense, and yet she completely lives for nature. And I think she's just super cool. And there's not many women working in that space. And she just is such a torchbearer. Um, and final question, if you could bring any species back from extinction, what would it be? I think I would like to see the lynx in the UK. And that is controversial for several reasons. But the UK doesn't have enough natural predators. And we have lots of problems going on, particularly in the north of England and the Highlands and Scotland, because we have lost our structure of the food chain. And so I'd like to see a big, sexy predator back. Amazing. Sophie, thank you very much. We haven't even touched on the fact that Dartmoor has the world's largest land slug. <laughs> <laughs>
which is disappointing. I know, fun fact. But you'll get to take that fact away with you. Um, So thank you very much and thank you all for being here. Thank you. Thank you to Sophie and thank you to our live studio audience. And thank you, Stanford, for hosting our event last year. Now... If you haven't already read Sophie's Forget-Me-Not, then it is now available in paperback and, as always, it is best read when purchased from an independent bookseller. Also, if the sounds of mine and Sophie's voices have got your castorium flowing, then you can hear the inverse of this interview, Sophie interviewing me, in a now very old episode of the Beaver Trust's Lodgecast podcast, which can be found through a link on the usual Trees A Crowd website, treesacrowd.fm, where you will also find links to all our previous episodes and a whole load of other things besides. Additionally, if you are listening to this in June of 2023, e.g. live, then in a couple of weeks you can watch Sophie and me host our annual Big Wild Quiz for the Wildlife Trust's 30 Days Wild campaign. Now, as always, we will be back again on the first Tuesday of the month, but from the confines of the British Isles this week, our next episode will be looking a little further afield. So, thank you again for listening. Please like, subscribe patreon us up the wazoo etc and i look forward to seeing you all again in july bye bye oh the oak and the ivy oh the oak and the ivy this podcast is produced by og podcasts find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk